Hey guys, it's me back again with another one of my little bonus episodes. I like taking a break from the normal action of the show from time to time whenever the inspiration strikes to share something fun and special with you. And today we're going to open up the old listener mailbag. Of course, there's no actual listener mailbag, old or otherwise, but I've always wanted to say that. Actually, I just posted to the Facebook group and Twitter and Instagram a while back saying, ask me anything. Anything about Christmas traditions, about Christmas in general, about me, whatever. And of course, the other kind of listener, mail, quote unquote, that I get from you is your Christmas memories, which I love getting and listening to and sharing with everyone else. And this bonus episode will include several of the ones I've gotten this season. I've mentioned before that just like last year, this season will include an episode dedicated solely to your Christmas memories. That'll be the next episode to arrive in your podcast queue in a couple of days. What that also means is that if you've been meaning to send me one, this is your last chance. There's still time, but it's running out very quickly. Okay, let's get on with it. Our first question is from B in England, who asks first, will you share my Christmas memory? <laughs> uh, just kidding, what is your ultimate Christmas indulgence? Okay, well first things first, yes, of course I'm going to share your Christmas memory, B. In fact, I'm going to do that right now. Hi, my name's B, and I'm from England. I have lots and lots of Christmas traditions, but uh, a couple of my quirkiest are around 15 years ago I was in New York for Christmas and when I was in Barnes & Noble I picked up a couple of Christmas books. Um, Christmas in Harmony by Philip Gully, A Redbird Christmas by Fanny Flagg and The Christmas Shoes by Donna Van Lier. Um, I made it a tradition to read those three books every single Christmas in the lead up basically from the 1st of December onwards. Um, over the years people have sort of caught wind of my little reading tradition so I've started to add books to my collection. Um, nowadays I'm up to about 28 um, Christmas books so needless to say if I wanted to get through them all in time I would probably have to start reading them in January or so. Um, another thing that I like to do, um, particularly in this day and age with cable TV and everything, is I like to get the TV guide in December. We get a big bumper edition in England called the Radio Times, even though it's for TV. And I get out all my highlighters and I go through and I look for all the classics like It's a Wonderful Life, Muppets Christmas Carol, etc, etc. So I make sure that we don't miss anything, especially the Queen's speech. Have a great Christmas, everyone. I too love reading Christmas stories during the season and all throughout the year, actually, but I don't think I could manage to read 28 during the season. That might be too much for me. But on to your second question, favorite Christmas indulgence. Well, you may have heard in the episode about fruitcake, I am completely unashamed in my admiration for fruitcake. Uh, all kinds of cakes like that, too. I love Panettone, and I could probably drink my own weight in eggnog. And gingerbread cookies are really up there on the list. As a matter of fact, before I sat down to record this episode, I baked a batch of gingerbread cookies. So my kitchen smells like ginger and cinnamon and cloves right now, and I might go help myself to a couple of those after I'm done here. But thank you for that question. So speaking of Panettone, Harry wants to know about Panettone. It's the same Harry who appeared in the episode about fruitcake. He shared his video of the Great Manitou Springs fruitcake toss that happens every year. And you might recall from that episode that he himself is not a fan of fruitcake, but he wants to know, does Panettone count as fruitcake? Which is a very reasonable question because it is cake with fruit in it. 
Uh, but does that mean it is a capital F fruitcake? Well, I am not the expert on that, so I figured I would consult one. So I turned to Andrea Ballard, who also appeared on the episode about fruitcake. She's one of the hosts of the Preheated podcast. And she says they are totally different in ingredients and taste. Panettone is Italian in origin. It's basically a fruity brioche, which is much lighter texture-wise than fruitcake, and on the drier side rather than being dense and moist. But I think it's gaining a similar reputation as fruitcake in that it's unwanted as a food gift that gets passed along to someone else. Well, like I said, I for one love panettone. I would say it's a lot more common than fruitcake. If you go into any grocery store or specialty store, you usually see a ton of them all over the place uh, compared to fruitcake where you might just have a few in the back corner. A lot of panettone makers are trying to get creative nowadays, adding all kinds of fun and novel ingredients. But for my money, you just can't beat the original the plain cake with the raisins or sultanas in it and the candied citrus peel, usually orange peel. So thank you, Harry, for that question. And now let's go on to Catherine Silver, who wants to know about how Black Friday got started. And this is an interesting one because it didn't actually get started. It kind of evolved on its own. The first time I ever heard this term, I was working a retail job back in the 90s at a music store. And to some of the younger listeners out there, that's how you used to get your hands on music. You'd go to a store and buy it on CD or cassette or even vinyl. And my manager used the term to describe the day as a dark day for people who worked in retail, meaning after Thanksgiving, that's when your life was going to get very, very crazy. It also appeared, I think this is starting back in the 50s, as not a dark day for retail workers, but a dark day for retailers themselves because so many people would try to call in sick on Friday to get a four-day weekend out of the Thanksgiving holiday. Police forces would also use the term similarly around that time because that's when things would get crazy with traffic details and managing crowds at events and things like that. It wasn't until the 1970s that a magazine article used it to describe the busiest day for retailers of the year. And after that, the term started working its way into popular culture, into the vernacular, and over time, people equated the term as meaning this is the season where retailers finally go into the black, quote unquote, meaning the time where they'd finally start turning a profit. And starting in around the 80s, retailers would actually use the term explicitly in their advertisements, saying they're going to have a Black Friday deal. And of course, nowadays we have the modern equivalence of that with our Amazon Prime Day and our Cyber Monday and Giving Tuesday and all kinds of things like that. There are even pre-Black Friday sales or Black Fridays that happen in the summer, etc. But this is not something that someone said, we're going to have this thing called Black Friday. It's kind of a term that was out there and then it got reappropriated to mean something else and it's just grown from there. Coffee Oshner wants to know, when did Hess Christmas trucks become a tradition? Uh, first of all, awesome name. Second of all, uh, there's not a much of a story behind these. They came out in the 60s, uh, I believe 1964. And I think the remarkable thing about all this is twofold is number one, they, they didn't make a big deal out of it. When they introduced the trucks, uh, they just put a small ad in a local newspaper and the things just sold out in almost no time. The remarkable thing about the trucks, and I don't want to sound like I'm doing an advertisement for them, but their reputation is that they are extremely well made. And sometimes there's a three-year development process from design to production for each of the models, and they do a new one each year. But that first one had working headlights. There was a little switch in the back that you could turn it on, had a rubber hose. These are the kinds of things that you couldn't make them on the cheap, very well designed and very well made and uh, made to last, I suppose. 
I've never owned one myself, and I've only become aware of them fairly recently, actually. There aren't many Hess gas stations uh, near where I grew up or where I live now, but I realize that they're pretty special to a lot of people, and it's something that's been going on for many, many years, and so at this point, I suppose we can say they are a Christmas tradition. All right, let's keep it rolling from people with awesome names. This one next comes from Silver Moon Mars LaRose, who wants to know, uh, have I done an episode about ribbon candy? I only ever see that at Christmas. No, I haven't done an episode about ribbon candy, but I just might. The reason that you see it at Christmas is because it was originally created as a Christmas treat. And as far as we can tell, this goes back a couple centuries in Europe where candy makers created this thing specifically for Christmas, the ribbons supposed to be representing the ribbons that you see around Christmas time. And one of the interesting things that I learned when I was reading about this is currently the largest maker of ribbon candy in the US and Canada is the FB Washburn Company, which is in Brockton, Massachusetts. I always like to talk about Massachusetts traditions because I'm from Massachusetts and I talked before about how the very first department store Santa was in Brockton, Massachusetts, which is two towns over from me. Uh, now the FB Washburn Company, I just learned, makes uh, the ribbon candy. Jingle Bells may or may not have been written in Medford, Massachusetts. And It Came Upon the Midnight Clear was written by a minister in Wayland, Massachusetts. So I take a certain pride in knowing that a lot of our Christmas traditions come from right in my own backyard. And I had plenty of ribbon candy growing up, although I have to say that my favorite hard Christmas candy are those little ones, I'm not even sure what you call them, I guess just traditional Christmas hard candies. They'd come in one of those canisters and it would just be this variety of flavors. Some would be peppermint, some would be cloves, some would be cinnamon. So yeah, that is the story with ribbon candy. Okay, Linda Phillips wants to know, why do we say that Santa Claus sometimes leaves coal in stockings? Well, if you go back to the three-part series I did about Santa Claus back in 2016, we know that some of the imagery we get about Santa is from some of these elfin witch-like characters from European folklore who would reward you for good behavior and punish you for bad. And in fact, for a long time, mostly in Europe, uh, Santa Claus would travel around with a helper, someone like Belsnickel or Krampus or Black Pete, whose job it was to punish you because people couldn't really bear the thought of seeing Santa himself doing anything bad to children. But when it comes to coal specifically, this is another idea that we may have borrowed from somebody else. In Italy, there is a magical gift bringer known as La Befana. She's a witch-like character who travels across the sky on her broom, comes down the chimney, and either leaves candy for good children or coal for bad. So I'm sure that sounds very familiar. Now, why is it coal specifically? Well, it probably has to do with the fact that she comes down the chimney, just like St. Nicholas does, and some fireplaces use coal as a form of, of uh, heat. So it'd be very convenient just to grab some of that dirty, smelly soot from the fireplace and pop it in the stocking. Now, one thing that would cause you to get a lump of coal in your stocking is trying to peek at your gifts before it's time to open them, which is something that Nathaniel can tell us a thing or two about as he shares in this Christmas memory. Christmas was always a big deal in my house. My mom would decorate the inside of the house with festive bows and scented sprays, and my dad would adorn the outside with classic big round colored bulbs. He'd get me and my brother to help, too, when he could. And when it was time to pick a tree and festoon it with ornaments, it was a family affair, with the placing atop the tree of a final piece, a classic star for years, followed by a golden angel, a very ceremonious occasion. We were tinsel enthusiasts for a long time, but our cat liked to eat the long shiny strands, and that wasn't something any of us wanted to deal with later. Those with cats probably know what I mean. 
Despite our meager family income, my folks always managed to make me and my brother feel like we'd been showered with a treasure trove of gifts. They really went all out, though I'm not sure the two of us deserved it. I remember one year in particular, my brother and I had asked for some big toy playsets, Castle Grayskull for me and my He-Man figures, and G.I. Joe headquarters for my brother. We were really shooting for the moon with our lists that year, and the two of us couldn't stand the suspense, not knowing if we'd overshot, asked for too much. One day, our mom had gone Christmas shopping all day in her old maroon Chevy Nova. When she returned carrying some bags into her room, my brother convinced me we should take the opportunity to run out and peek in the Nova's trunk to see what we could see. And there they were, both our playsets in their boxes, in all their illustrated glory. Of course, our mom came out then and dressed us down but good. We had ruined everything with our snooping, she said, so she would be returning our playsets to the store and we had no one to blame but ourselves. Oh, the humanity, the absolute tragedy. We shed our tears and raked our cheeks with our fingernails, but she was not moved. Eventually, Christmas Eve came, and after we emptied our stockings, which was our tradition the night before, we had to go to bed. Somehow, my brother and I had convinced our parents that even though we each had our own rooms, on Christmas Eve we should bunk up like old times, a little slumber party, which of course meant hardly sleeping at all. We always chose to stay in my brother's room, as it was a few feet closer to the living room and the presents under the tree. Every year, we would make several assays out into the living room, creeping in our stocking feet, hoping to glimpse some special present that had been set out and could not be wrapped like a bicycle. This year, we saw nothing, and our hearts quailed. But lo and behold, in the morning, there were our playsets, out of their boxes, and all set up. Sometime during the night, our parents had created quite a tableau for us. That magic morning meant so much to me. Not just the gifts, but the love, the forgiveness for our snooping, the magic of the morning discovery. As a father of a toddler now, with a wonderful wife who loves Christmas just as much as I do, that Christmas morning magic is something I'll always try to make for my daughter. And it's a feeling I'm always chasing, too, trying to recreate for myself. Nathaniel is the host of the Historical Blindness podcast, and if you listen to one of the most recent episodes, you might hear a very familiar voice because he invited me on to talk about some Christmas history. And thanks again, Nathaniel, for doing that, and thank you for sharing that Christmas memory. Okay, so moving from getting on Santa's bad side to his good side, our friend Todd Killian wants to know how did the tradition of leaving cookies for Santa get started? Uh, okay, something else that we've also borrowed probably goes back to the days of Odin, and this is something I also talked about in the three-part series on Santa Claus. Odin is always pictured as an old man with a long white beard, and so is Santa Claus, and it's probably borrowed from that. And during Yule, during the winter solstice celebration, Odin would go on this thing called the Wild Chase or the Wild Hunt. He would fly across the night sky on his horse Sleipnir, and children would leave hay for the horse in their shoes. And this is certainly not the only example of that. Uh, in Iceland, with the Yule Lads, children will also leave things in their shoes. That also, and you see that in other uh, Scandinavian countries. The idea of leaving things for either the gift bringer or the gift bringer's helpers goes way, way back. 
Now, why cookies specifically and not some other kind of treat, I, I really couldn't say for sure. I tried to find some evidence of a first written record of someone doing that. It is most likely that it first showed up in some kind of children's story and just caught on from there. Now, Todd knows a thing or two about cookies. If you are a member of the Facebook group, you'll see that Todd shared photos from his event, uh, family event known as Cookie Day, where his family just bakes all different kinds of cookies. They put out a cookie menu and people come and just enjoy the season and enjoy some cookies and enjoy his parents' fabulous looking house. Uh, so if you're not in the Facebook group, come join, if for no other reason than to check out Todd's pictures and documentation of Cookie Day. And thank you, Todd, for that question. Crystal Coronelli wants to know, why do we put oranges in stockings? Uh, this is another one of those traditions that's been around for a long time and no one really knows where it came from. It probably comes from several different sources. I've seen some explanations that this is something that started in the Great Depression, where there wasn't really money to buy anything else. I've seen explanations that this started in countries where things like oranges were rare, especially in the winter, so it would be a rare treat. Uh, and also the idea of giving food in general for Christmas goes way, way back. As a matter of fact, before we got to our current climate of mass-produced goods and buying Christmas presents in stores, uh, small handmade items and food were basically what you gave for Christmas. And not only that, but Christmas gifts were typically left in the tree, like actually in the tree rather than under it. And I've seen some old Christmas decorations that were basically these paper cones meant for holding food that would be filled with things like dried fruit and candied nuts and hung in the tree for Christmas. Jesse Patterson wants to know, what are my favorite Christmas YouTube videos? Uh, that's a good question. I don't really get a lot of my Christmas content on YouTube unless it's something I'm looking for and can't find elsewhere. So lately that's been those old variety programs, especially from the 60s, the, the Dean Martin and the Bing Crosby kinds of things. And I wonder why there aren't more of these nowadays. I know that Bill Murray did something like that with his uh, Murray Christmas on Netflix. Stephen Colbert did kind of a parody of it. Most modern versions of it are done with a bit of a, a tongue-in-cheek approach. So things like that, or maybe some old Christmas cartoons that I'm not able to find on any of the streaming services I have. And then of course there's my own YouTube channel, so I'm giving you a shameless plug here, but if you're interested in Christmas trivia, you might want to go by the YouTube channel and see some of the games that I've done. And I'll take this opportunity to say, as always, that if you would like to play Christmas trivia with me, the invitation is open any time of year. Just get in touch at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com and we will schedule something together. Speaking of Christmas trivia, I'm not the only game in town, as Rachel in New York can tell us. Let's take a listen to this Christmas memory. I'm sitting here with my daughter, Sam, and we wanted to share a Christmas memory. Um, and my grandmother was always our matriarch and led Christmas, and it was always so special and just a wonderful big celebration for the whole family. And after she passed away in 2005, um, Christmases thereafter got significantly drearier. Um, so later on, around 2014, her daughters, my mother and my aunts, um, started really wanting to bring back our Christmas parties. And um, they all allocated everyone having different um, duties. Someone would bring this dish to pass. Someone would do the decorations. And my Aunt Brenda told me that I was in charge of bringing the fun. <laughs> so instead of um, loading up a bunch of board games or um, Christmas DVDs to share at the party, I decided to make a Christmas trivia game. 
And so from 2014 on, everyone has ended up really um, enjoying my shepherdy game. We, my husband came up with that. He's pretty witty. The shepherds watch their flocks by night. So we called it shepherdy. And everyone broke up into two teams and competed against each other to win a scratch-off lotto ticket wreath that I would make every year. And... Um, this year is going to be just as special and luckily I discovered this podcast and came up with a with a few unique questions that haven't been done before so I'm really looking forward to seeing how everybody uh, has a good time together this year and um, I'm also ending up sharing it with my husband's family and all of my co-workers too so it's going to be a great year and uh, I'll continue that tradition with my own kids for years to come. All right. Thanks a lot. Merry Christmas. So just a quick word of advice to Rachel. You might want to look into copywriting the term shepherdy because I have a feeling that if you don't, someone else is going to use that. That is just too darn clever and sounds like a lot of fun. And also Rachel has shared photos of the shepherdy game board in the Christmas past Facebook group. So just head on into the group, search for shepherdy. Okay, let's close this out with one final question from Christine Alexander, who asks the very simple and eternal question, is it better to give or to receive? Uh, well, if you're talking about hugs, I would say it's even money. It is just as good to give and receive a hug because hugs are the best. But I presume you're talking about Christmas gifts. And for sure, I've reached a place in my life where it is a lot more fun to give I mentioned this in the Facebook group as well. A tradition my wife and I started maybe five years ago is that each year we pick a theme, a keyword theme, and every gift we give one another must fit that theme somehow. And that's one of the ways that we've been able to keep gift giving fun and creative and festive as it's meant to be. Okay, I think that'll do it for this episode. Like I said, the next episode you get is going to be our All Christmas Memories episode. And if you want to be in it, please do send me your Christmas memory within the next day or two. You know the drill by now. Record a voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, I'll remind you that Christmas Past is produced in sunny San Mateo, California by yours truly, Brian Earle. Thank you to everyone who submitted a question and shared a Christmas memory in this episode. Please do join the Facebook group if you haven't yet. You'll find a link to that and all of my other social media profiles at the bottom of every page on christmaspast.media. This podcast is a proud member of the Christmas Podcast Network, a collection of the best Christmas shows around. We have TV and movie review shows, history, comedy, and music shows. You can find all of that at christmaspodcastnetwork.com. And I hope I find you next time for more stories from Christmas past, because they are all your stories from Christmas past. So I look forward to seeing you in the All Christmas Memories episode coming soon.